When I was a young man, I did something that broke my grandfather's heart. And for a little while, it caused a separation between he and I. And you got to understand how bad that was, because he and I were inseparable before that. He took me everywhere on that farm, and he told me one day, he said, Paul, you and I run this farm together. Oh boy, that made me feel like a big shot, because I thought he was a big shot. And he gave me access to everything on the farm. For example, I got to use the cattle prod to shock the bulls. I also got to drive the tractor. And then he gave me this list of rules that I needed to follow so that I'd be safe and I'd, others would be safe. And sadly, one of those rules was I can't shock my younger brother and cousins with the cattle prod. But another rule was you can't play with tools. Tools are tools and they're not toys. And he had this tape measure that I love to play with. I love to pull that out and bend it into shapes. And he said, look, you're going to break that. And that's a tool. It's not a toy. So he put it up in the top of the garage and he said, leave it alone. And I didn't. I climbed up there and I got it down and I played with it and it broke. And so I tried to cover it up. You know, I put the pieces back together and I put it right back in place. And somehow he knew. And he came looking for me in the evening. He walked into the frame of, of the doorway of my bedroom and he had one piece in one hand and one piece in the other. And I saw his shadow and I saw him and I rolled over, turned my back toward him and pretended to be asleep. The next morning, it was our fishing trip, which we regularly took, and we headed down to the pond, and he and my brother are buddy-buddy, but nothing said to me, and you could feel that silence like you could cut it with a knife, and I was miserable. I stood on the other side of the pond, I looked at them over there having a wonderful time, and I began to feel horrible. Now, I'm an adult, and I'm processing what those feelings were. I remember them. They were strong, and I think what I was doing is I was imagining what if it never goes back to like it was? What if this separation is permanent? And I was scared, and I was miserable. I wanted it to go back like it was supposed to be, but I had no idea about how to go about doing that. Well, in Scripture, the theme of the temple tells the story of God and man's relationship, how sin ruined all that, and how God made a way back to him. And so in our series, Hidden in Plain Sight, we're going to look at this way back to God that's hidden in the temple. But what is the temple theme that I'm going to be talking about here a couple of times? Let me uh, define that a little bit. When I say temple theme, I'm not so much talking about a structure. I'm not so much talking about the ritual in the temple. But I'm talking about its meaning and its message. You see, the temple theme speaks of God's dwelling place, and it says that God wants mankind to be with Him. He wants mankind to be perfectly united with Him in mind and in thought. And He wants us to share all things, even His very self. The first time we see the temple theme might surprise you. It's in the garden. It's at the very beginning of creation. God came to the darkness. His spirit hovered over the deep. And He said, let there be light. And light entered into the world. And God kept on speaking until everything that was made or has been made was made. And once the world was in place, God planted a garden. And as we read about this garden in Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 2, it becomes pretty obvious it's God's dwelling place on earth at that time. And it was beautiful. Lush vegetation, plenty of fruit, all kinds of animals. 
even gold. Look it up. There's a gold mine in the Garden of Eden. Well, God worked, and he walked in this garden. And in this garden, his creative power was fully expressed. And we hear him say these words, and they're important because they talk about you and I. He said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over everything. God created man and woman, and he put them in the garden he had made so that we would work it and that we would take care of it. He wanted us to use that creative power as his creation to take care of the garden. If you were to look at Adam and Eve carrying out their daily duties before the fall, I think you would have seen in their manner, in their person, and in the fruit of their labor, the fingerprint of God. God had given them at creation the potential to grow fully into His holiness, His life, Him. And so Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden in the presence of God, in the image of God, in the likeness of God, and their hands and their feet were involved in the work of God, and God was the center of their lives at that time. And in a very real sense, God's life was in them. This is the image of the temple of God as it was meant to be. God and man living together and sharing all things. So the garden was the temple of God for Adam and Eve, the first dwelling place of God together with mankind. And in God's own words, after he evaluated all of that, he said it is very good. Then the story takes a dark turn. Satan tempts Adam and Eve by making the forbidden attractive. They disobeyed God. They sinned. And almost immediately, they knew something had changed. They're full of shame. They're full of fear. The darkness in their mind starts to get more and more intense. And so they try to cover it up. And they cover up themselves with some leaves, it seems. But it doesn't work. When God comes looking for them, He calls out, and you might can hear the pain in His voice, Where are you? What have you done? But the damage is very much done. And God uses a temporary covering made of animal skin for Adam and Eve. And when we read of that word there in Genesis 3.21, the covering God made for them, it's the same Hebrew word that's translated a tone in other places. And it's the first time we read it in Scripture. And here is the first time that the innocent died to cover up the sin of the wicked. And Adam and Eve are covered, but they're not restored. And so they must leave the holy ground of the Garden of Eden. They're escorted out of the Garden Temple, out of the presence of God, and cherubim are placed at the Garden Gates. Cherubim, the righteous, avenging, warrior angels of God. And so the message is very clear. You cannot come back. You cannot come this way unless you can, in a pure sense, carry the image and the likeness of God. You cannot come back into the presence of God. What should we say then of Adam and Eve? Are we any different? No. We know all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know that the wages of sin is spiritual death. Romans 3 and Romans 6. We too lose that temple fellowship ideal when we walk in darkness, pursuing our own agenda, and we're separated by Him because of sin. But we do have hope, do we not? We have hope not found in ourselves, but this is a hope that is found in who God is. We read of a definition of who God is in Exodus 34, 5-7. God is a compassionate and gracious God. He's slow to anger and abounding in love 
and faithfulness, forgiving rebellion and sin. Yet, He does not leave the guilty unpunished. So God's going to demonstrate His justice. And at the same time, He's the one who justifies or makes righteous those who put their faith in Him. And so how can this be? How's He going to do that? How will He carry out His justice and punish sin with death and at the same time save the life of the sinner and restore the sinner back into Himself? How do we get back? How are we reconciled with God? And once again, it is God's desire to be unified with His people which is communicated through the temple imagery that provides the answer. You see, we get a glimpse of the way back to God in the design of the tabernacle in the wilderness. So the tabernacle in the wilderness, you got to understand, was a precursor to what later became called the temple. But whether it's the tabernacle or it's the temple in the time of Solomon or in the time of Zerubbabel or in the time of Herod, it's all built after the same design. And all four of these are the dwelling place of God for the Israelites so long as they remain His people. So the tabernacle was first constructed by Moses right after he led the uh, children of Israel out of Egypt. In fact, we read when God led Israel out of Egypt, He went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. So God led the Israelites to the desert, and there He commands them to construct the tabernacle after the pattern of the true temple in heaven. Exodus 25 and Hebrews 9. So once this earthly tabernacle built after the pattern of the true one in heaven was complete and everything was ready, we read in Exodus 40, 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the sanctuary, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now around that same time, God had given the Israelites the Ten Commandments. He'd given them the sacrifices. He had given them the priesthood. We read all of this in Leviticus. What is God doing with all of that? What do the priesthood and the sacrifices in the temple have anything to do with us being reconciled unto God? And there are these two powerful statements that tells us what He's up to in Leviticus chapter 20 and, and chapter 19. And they are these. Be ye holy because I am holy. And then He says this. I am the God who makes you holy. He says the very thing He wants, that those who love Him want, that's impossible for them, He will make happen. Well, again, how can a holy and righteous God dwell among a sinful people? How can a, a sinful people serve the living God? And in order to answer this, let's first take a walk with the repentant Israelite as they make their way to the temple to worship God. So God is residing in the temple. You can see the smoke there if you look really close. And you can see also the smoke from the altar where the sacrifice is burning. And that's important to connect those two. So let's do that here in just a little bit. But keep that in mind. He's residing in the temple because the cloud is hovering over the tabernacle. And so first the Israelite is going to choose the proper sacrifices God has commanded. And we're going to say for our conversation this morning that they choose the burnt offering. That's kind of detailed for us in Leviticus 1. But then the Israelite is going to bring from the flock of sheep a male without spot or blemish. And that animal had to be acceptable to the Lord. So the Israelite brings the animal up to the gate. And there the priest is going to examine him. And if the priest says, yes, indeed, it is without blemish, then the Israelite and his animal can make the way onto the altar. 
He's going to lay his hand upon the animal's head there at the altar and designate that animal as his substitute. Now, what that meant is that from here on out, whatever happens to the animal symbolically happens to the worshiper. And wherever the animal goes, the worshiper symbolically goes as well and makes the same journey. And so laying the hand on the animal defines them as their substitute, but it does one other thing as well. When the worshiper laid his hand upon the animal's head, he transferred all of his sin to that animal. Once this is done, the worshiper himself kills the animal. And that's for a reason, too. When the worshiper kills the animal that now bears his sin, he says something very important to God. He says, God, I agree with you that my sin is worthy of death. And, O Lord, you are righteous when you judge And you are merciful when you justify. And that's what the worshiper believed. He believed that through this ritual, God was justifying them. The penalty of their sin was being paid. And God was placing them back in a righteous state from which they can now serve the loving God again. And then the animal's blood is going to be sprinkled against all sides of the altar. And the worshiper understood by faith that God had made atonement for their sin. The priest is going to lay wood. He's going to put fire on the altar. He's going to lay the animal on top of it. And that animal will be burned and consumed completely. And that animal will be transformed from that body into something different. Something like smoke. That smoke being very much like the cloud that's over the top of the sanctuary. Now remember, when that smoke would rise up and drift towards the sanctuary and the cloud above it for the worshiper, they saw that smoke as themselves, free from sin, making the journey upward and toward the inner sanctuary and into the presence of God. And they understood that they were devoting themselves to God and to His service. In fact, in Josephus, we read a statement that they would have made. And it would have been, O Lord, I give you everything that I am And everything that I have, I dedicate to you. Now we can imagine the smoke continuing to drift over the court of the tabernacle where the priests served. Over the lavar where the priests purified themselves for service. That smoke would have gone to the first curtain of the tabernacle and into the holy place. And in the holy place resided the table of showbread on the north wall, which represented God's provision and His desire for fellowship with His people. And then on the south wall was the lampstand. And that meant the light of God illuminates His people and gives them understanding. He provides all their spiritual needs. And this little room makes this declaration. I want you to be with me where I will provide you with everything physically and spiritually that you will need in order to serve me well. And then on the west wall against the curtain was the altar of burnt incense. And this altar was placed there right by the curtain. It had incense mixed with coals from the fire out on the altar of burnt offering. And that incense would burn and give off a sweet-smelling smoke that would rise up and go behind the curtain into the very presence of God where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And this curtain, it had cherubim woven into its fabric. And so the imagery is that the cherubim allowed the smoke and the worshiper to pass. The incense represented the prayers, the worship, and the service of the people, and that its service, they themselves, were sweet 
smelling favorable unto God. And so by faith, the worshiper heard God say, you and your life are pleasing to me. And by faith, they passed by the cherubim into the presence of God, into the most holy place. Now, the most holy place was God's dwelling place where his intention for mankind is fully realized. And it was meant to be the true home of God's people. This path through the tabernacle symbolically took the worshiper back into the garden life that we described earlier, where man and God lived together and worked together, creating and preserving the good. Now, the worshiper is not smoke, and God is not a cloud. But the sacrifice and the blood and the smoke and the cloud gave a visual representation of God and man being reconciled and united once again and joining each other in a good, godly work spiritually speaking. But the sad reality is that the Israelite worshiper never journeyed into the throne room. They never made it past the altar. The priests would journey between the altar and into the holy place, but never past the veil. From Matt's lesson a few weeks ago, we learned that the high priest would go into the most holy place once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. But he also mentioned in Hebrews 10 that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. And so this tells us that the sacrifices could never make perfect the conscience of the worshiper who tried to draw near to God. But it all points to a reality, doesn't it, that is found in Jesus Christ. How fitting are these words in John 14, 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the temple ritual and the activity of the high priest and going into the throne room of God to make atonement was all prophetic of the work of Jesus, who with his sacrifice would once for all remove all of our sin. And that curtain would be removed along with it. Now let me read Hebrews 9, 11 through 12. It says, When Jesus came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, talking about the one in heaven, That is, not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? So what the sacrifices could never do, Christ did. Our sins atoned for. Our sacrifice, Jesus, cleanses our conscience from sin that leads to death. But what does that look like? What does that look like, that work of Christ that he did for us in the heavenly temple? I think it's a little something like this. We come to Christ and we express our desire to be reconciled with God. We place on him our faith that he and only he can make that happen. And then by faith, we accompany him to the altar, the cross, and by faith, we present him as our sacrifice. He is, after all, a lamb without defect or blemish, and in him wasn't found any sin. And we place our hand upon his head, and we declare him to be our substitute. We confess our sin, and we transfer our sin unto him. He dies to pay the penalty of our sin. And with His blood, He makes atonement. He then rises because He's righteous. And sin has no power to hold Him. And so He rises. 
He takes His life back and He bestows upon us His righteousness. And we understand that by putting our faith in the work of Christ, we've done all that God asks us to do. We understand that God has justified us. And now we have His holy, sovereign permission to live just as if we had never sinned. Do you feel that permission? He has cleansed our conscience from acts that lead to death. We have a cleared conscience. And likewise, God is fully satisfied in the matter. All responsibility for wrong has been taken upon Jesus. Justice has been served. He's satisfied. There is now nothing that separates us from Him. Now in the temple in heaven, Jesus Christ takes us with Him behind the veil into the presence of God, and there God says of us, This is my beloved son, daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And we are reconciled unto God. So what does reconciliation unto God mean for us? Practically speaking, it means that we become the temple. We're not reconciled to a place like a beautiful garden like Eden. We're not reconciled to an elaborate temple like Solomon's. I'm not so sure we're reconciled to this place called heaven. We're reconciled to God Himself. We are reconciled back to His original intent for He and our relationship. It is a reconciliation that takes place in our minds and our hearts towards His person, His image, His likeness, and His purpose for our lives. We are reconciled back to that potential to live and to become holy that He gave us at creation. Now listen to this. Jesus says in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Those who obey the teaching of Jesus become the temple of God. The Apostle Paul collaborates in 2 Corinthians 5, 16b. He says, For we are the temple of God, speaking of the church. So Jesus' work in reconciling me to God was so effective that God can now reside in me, His Spirit can live in me and through me if I will let Him. This is what existing in His likeness is all about. Letting God truly become the center of my life that I might bear His image to the world. Through the temple, people are reconciled to God. And this means that we as the temple become instruments of reconciliation and we carry out a ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, Paul says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is meaningful work. I'm sorry it's not a beautiful garden. I'm sorry it's not a, a gold that we can you know, gather in around us or a big huge mount mansion. Those things may be there in some form, but more than anything, reconciliation to God is this. We get to live without sin cutting us off and stomping us down fully into all that God is, love. And let that transform us and change us without any conscience getting in the way. No, I'm not this. I can't do that. Yes, you can. Because all of that's gone that would impede you from doing so. And all that's left is this desire of His that you grow fully into His likeness and in His image. And reconciliation is sweet. Let me give you an illustration. I'm standing on the far side of the pond. And I'm watching my grandpa my brother enjoy and have the time of their life 
and I'm over there with my pole, and I throw the line, and it gets caught in a tree. So I start trying to yank it down, and he says, wait, you'll break the line. Let me come help you, and I keep pulling, and it breaks, and I looked over at him, and I felt like I heard him say, that boy never listens, and I cried out. He thought I was hurt. I cried out, and I started running toward him. He thought something was wrong, so he's, he's walking towards me. And I grab his legs, and I say, Grandpa, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I don't listen. I'm sorry I broke the tape measure. I'm sorry I broke the line. Do you still love me? He said, Son, I'll never stop loving you. Reconciliation for me and him meant I walked like him, and I talked like him, and it was very good. Be ye reconciled unto God. Jesus says, if you obey my teaching, you will become the temple of God. What is Jesus' teaching? Well, here's one of them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you want to be reconciled unto God this morning, and you haven't been, please come as we stand and sing.